Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 10. Chapter 64. Stubbs' Supper. Stubbs' whale had been killed some distance from the ship. It was a calm, so, forming a tandem of three boats, we commenced the slow business of towing the trophy to the Pequod. And now, as we eighteen men, with our thirty-six arms and one hundred and eighty thumbs and fingers, slowly toiled hour after hour upon that inert, sluggish corpse in the sea, and it seemed hardly to budge at all, except at long intervals, good evidence was hereby furnished of the enormousness of the mass we moved. For upon the great canal of Hang Ho, or whatever they call it, in China four or five laborers on the footpath will draw a bulky freighted junk at the rate of a mile an hour. But this great argosy we towed forged heavily along, as if laden with pig lead in bulk. Darkness came on, but three lights up and down in the Pequod's main rigging dimly guided our way, till drawing nearer we saw Ahab dropping one of several more lanterns over the bulwarks. Vacantly eyeing the heaving whale for a moment, he issued the usual orders for securing it for the night, and then handing his lantern to a seaman, went his way into the cabin and did not come forward again until morning. Though in overseeing the pursuit of this whale, Captain Ahab had evinced his customary activity, to call it so, yet, now that the creature was dead, some vague dissatisfaction, or impatience, or despair seemed working in him, as if the sight of that dead body reminded him that Moby Dick was yet to be slain, and though a thousand other whales were brought to his ship, all that would not one jot advance his grand monomaniac object. Very soon, you would have thought from the sound on the Pequod's decks that all hands were preparing to cast anchor in the deep, for heavy chains are being dragged along the deck, and thrust rattling out of the portholes. But by those clanking links, the vast corpse itself, not the ship, is to be moored. Tied by the head to the stern and by the tail to the bows, the whale now lies with its black hull close to the vessels, and even through the darkness of the night which obscured the spars and rigging aloft, the two, the ship and the whale, seemed yoked together like colossal bullocks, whereof one reclines while the other remains standing. Footnote. A little item may well be related here. The strongest and most reliable hold which the ship has upon the whale when moored alongside is by the flukes or tail. And as for um, its greater density, that part is relatively heavier than any other, except the side fins. Its flexibility, even in death, causes it to sink low beneath the surface so that with the hand you cannot get at it from the boat. In order to put the chain round it, but this difficulty is ingeniously overcome. A small, strong line is prepared with a wooden float at its outer end and a weight in its middle, while the other end is secured to the ship. 
By adroit management of the wooden float, it is made to rise on the other side of the mast so that now, having girdled the whale, the chain is readily made to follow suit and being slipped along the body is locked fast round the smallest part of the tail, at the point of junction with the broad flukes or lobes. If Moody Ahab was now all quiescence, at least so far as could be known on deck, Stubb, his second mate, flushed with conquest, betrayed an unusual but still good-natured excitement. Such an unwanted bustle was he that the staid Starbuck, his official superior, quietly resigned to him for the time the sole management of affairs. One small, helping cause of all this liveliness in Stubb was soon made strangely manifest. Stubb was a high liver. He was somewhat intemperately fond of the whale as a flavorish thing on his plate. A steak, a steak, or I sleep. You, Dago, overboard you go, and come me one from a small. Here be it known that though these wild fishermen do not, as a general thing, and according to the great military maxim, make the enemy defray the current expenses of the war, at least before realizing the proceeds of the voyage, yet now and then you find some of these Nantucketers who have a genuine relish for that particular part of the sperm whale designated by Stubb comprising the tapering extremity of the body. About midnight that steak was cut and cooked and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil, Stubb stoutly stood up to his spermaceti supper at the capstan head, as if that capstan were a sideboard. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night, mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, thousands upon thousands of sharks swimming round the dead leviathan smackingly feasted on its fatness. The few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled by the sharp slapping of their tails against the hull, within a few inches of the sleepers' heads. Peering over the side, you could see them, as before you heard them, wallowing in the sullen black waters and turning over on their backs as they scooped out huge globular pieces of the whale of the bigness of a human head. This particular feat of the shark seems all but miraculous, how at such an apparently unassailable surface they contrive to gouge out such symmetrical mouthfuls remains a part of the universal problem of all things. The mark they thus leave on the whale may best be likened to the hollow made by a carpenter in countersinking for a screw. Though amid all the smoking horror and diabolism of a sea fight, sharks will be seen longingly gazing up at the ship's decks like hungry dogs round a table where red meat is being carved, ready to bolt down every killed man that is tossed to them. And though, while the valiant butchers over the deck table are thus cannibally carving each other's live meat with carving knives all gilded and tasseled, the sharks, also with their jewel-hilted mouths, are quarrelsomely carving away under the table at the dead meat. And though, were you to turn the whole affair upside down, it would still be pretty much the same thing, that is to say, a shocking sharkish business enough for all parties. And though sharks are the invariable outriders of all slave ships crossing the Atlantic, systematically trotting alongside to be handy in case a parcel is to be carried anywhere, or a dead slave to be decently buried, and though one or two other like instances might be set down touching the set terms places, and occasions where sharks do most socially congregate and most hilariously feast. Yet, is there no conceivable time or occasion where you will find them in such countless numbers and in gayer or more jovial spirits than around a dead sperm whale moored at night by a whale ship at sea?
If you have never seen that site, then suspend your decision about the propriety of devil worship and the expediency of conciliating the devil. But as yet Stubb heeded not the mumblings of the banquet that were going on so nigh him, no more than the sharks heeded the smacking of his own epicurean lips. Cook, cook, where's that old face? He cried at length, widening his legs still further as if to form a more secure base for his supper, and at the same time darting his fork into the dish as if stabbing with a lamp. Cook, you cook, sail us away, cook! The old black, not in any very high glee at having been previously roused from his warm hammock at a most unseasonable hour, came shambling along from his galley, for, like many old blacks, there was something the matter with his knee pans, which he did not keep well scoured like his other pans. This old fleece, as they called him, came shuffling and limping along, assisting his step with his tongs, which, after a clumsy fashion, were made of straightened iron hoops. This old ebony foundered along, and in obedience to the word of command, came to a dead stop on the opposite side of Stubb's sideboard, when, with both hands folded before him and resting on his two-legged cane, he bowed his arched back still further over, at the same time sideways inclining his head so as to bring his best ear into play. Cook! said Stubb, rapidly lifting a rather reddish morsel to his mouth. Don't you think the steak is rather overdone? You've been beating the steak too much, Cook. It's too tender. Don't I always say that to be good, a whale steak must be tough? There are those sharks over the side. Don't you see they prefer it tough and rare? What a shindy they are kicking up. Good. Cook, go and talk to them. Tell them they are welcome to help themselves civilly in moderation, but they must keep quiet. Blast me if I can hear my own voice. Anyway, Cook, deliver my message. Here, take this lantern. Snatching one from the sideboard. Now, then, go and preach to them. Sullenly taking the offered lantern, Old Fleece limped across the deck to the bulwarks and then, with one hand dropping his light low over the sea so as to get a good view of his congregation, with the other hand he solemnly flourished his tongs, and leaning over the side in a mumbling voice began addressing the sharks while Stubb, softly crawling behind, overheard all that was said. Fellow critters, I's ordered here to say dat you must stop dat damn noise dare, you hear? Stop dat damn smacking ob de lip. Massa Stubb say dat you can fill your damn bellies up to de hatchings, but by gore, you must stop dat damn racket. Cook! Here interposed Stubb, accompanying the word with a sullen slap on the shoulder. Cook! Oh, damn your eyes! You must have swear that way when you're preaching. That's no way to convert sinners, Cook! Who dat? Then preach to him yourself sullenly turning to go. No, cook, go on, go on. Well, then. Beloved fellow critters. Right, exclaimed Stubb approvingly. Coax him in to it. Try that. And Fleece continued. Do you is all sharks, and by nature very voracious. Yet I say to you, fellow creatures, dat dat voraciousness top dat damn slappin' ob detail. How you tink to hear, s'pose you keep up such a damn slapping and biting dare. Cook, said Stubb, collaring him. I won't have that swearing. Talk to him, gentlemanly. Once more, the sermon proceeded. Your voraciousness, fellow critters, I don't blame you for so much. Dat is nature, and can't be helped. But to govern dat wicked nature, dat is de pint. You is sharks, sartin. But if you govern to shark in you... Why den be you be angel? For all angel is nothing more than de shark well governed. Now look here, brethren. Just try worsen to be civil. 
uh, helping yourselves from that whale. Don't be tearing the blubber out your neighbor's mouth, I say. Is not one shark dude right as tother to dat whale? And by gore, none of you has the right to dat whale. Dat whale belong to someone else. I know some of you has very brig mouth, brigger than others, but then the brig mouth sometimes has the small bellies, so that the brigness of the mouth is not smaller width. But to bit off the blubber for the small fry of sharks that can't get into the scourge to help themselves. Well done, O'Fleece, said Stubb. That's Christianity. Go on. No use going on. Dem damn Williams keep scourging and a slapping each other, Master Stubb. They don't hear one word. No use a preaching to such damn gluttons as you call them till their bellies is full. To, and their bellies is bottomless, and when they do get em full, they won't hear you then, for then they sinked in the sea, go fast to sleep on the coral, and can't hear nothing at all, no more, forever and ever. Upon my soul, I'm about the same opinion, so give the benediction, please, and all the way to my supper. Upon this, Fleece, holding both hands over the fishy mob, raised his shrill voice and cried, Cust, fellow critters! Kip up the dambest row as ever you can! Fill your damn bellies till they burst, and then die. No cook, said Stubb, resuming his supper at the capstan. Stand just by there where you stood before there. Over against me, and pay particular attention. All denchin, said Fleece, again stooping over upon his tongs in the desired position. Well, said Stubb, helping himself freely meanwhile. I shall now go back to the subject of the steak. In the first place, how old are you, cook? What dat do with de steak? said the bl old black testily. Silence! How old are you, cook? About ninety, they say, he gloomily muttered. And you have lived in this world hard upon one hundred years, cook. And don't you know yet how to cook a whale stick? Rapidly bolting another mouthful at the last word, so the morsel seemed a continuation of the question. Where were you born, cook? Hind de hatchway in ferryboat going over de Roanoke. Born in a ferryboat, that's queer too. But I want to know what country you were born in, Cook. Didn't I say de Roanoke country? He cried sharply. No, you didn't, Cook. But I'll tell you what I'm going to come to, Cook. You must go home and be born over again. You don't know how to cook a whale steak yet. Bless my soul, if I cook nutter one, he growled angrily, turning round to deport. Come back, Cook. Here, hand me those songs. Now, take that bit of steak there. Tell me if you think that steak cooked as it should be. Take it, I say, holding the tongs toward him. Take it and taste it. Faintly smacking his withered lips over it for a moment, the old negro muttered, Best cook take I ever taste, juicy, very juicy. Cook, said Stubb, squaring himself once more. Do you belong to church? Passed one once in Cape Town, said the old man sullenly. And you have once in your life passed a holy church in Cape Town, where you doubtless overheard a holy person addressing his hearers as beloved fellow creatures. Have you cook? And yet you come here and tell me as a dreadful lies you just did now then, eh? Said Stubb. Where do you expect to go, cook? Go to bed very soon, he mumbled, half turning as he spoke. Avast! Heave to! I mean when you die, cook. It's an awful question. Now what's your answer? When dis old brack man dies, said the negro, slowly, changing his whole air and demeanor, he himself won't go nowhere, but some breast angel will come and fetch him. Fetch him? How? In a coach and fours they fetched Elijah? And fetch him where? Up there said Fleece, holding his tongs straight over his head and keeping it there very solemnly. So then you expect to go to our main top, do you, Cook, when you are dead? 
But don't you know, the higher you climb, the colder it gets, Wingtop, eh? Didn't say dat tall, said Fleece, again in sulks. You sat up there, didn't you? Now look yourself. You see where your tongues are pointing? But perhaps you expect to go to heaven by crawling up through the lover's hole, Cook. But no, no, Cook. You don't get there. Except you go the regular way, round by the rigging. It's a ticklish business, but it must be done, or else it's no go. But none of us are in heaven yet. Drop your tongs, Cook, and hear my orders, do you hear? Hold your hat in one hand, and clap the other atop your heart, when I'm giving you orders, Cook. What? That your heart there? That's your gizzard! Aloft! Aloft! That's it! Now! Have it! Hold it there now, and pay attention. All dention, said the old black, with both hands placed as desired, vainly wriggling his grizzled head as if to get both ears in front at one and the same time. Well then, Cook, you see this whale stick of yours was very bad. That I have to put it out of sight as soon as possible, you see that, don't you? Well, for the future, when you cook another whale steak for my private table here, the capstan, I tell you that you have not to spoil it by overdoing it. Hold the steak in one hand and show a live coal to it with the other. That done, dish it, do you hear? And now, tomorrow, cook, when we are cutting in this fish, be sure to stand by to get the tips of his fins and have it put in pickle. And for the ends of the flukes, have them soused, cook. There, now, you may go. The police had hardly got three paces off when he was recalled. Cook! Give me cutlets for supper tomorrow, right, on the mid-watch, do you hear? Oh, you sail, then, hello, stop! Make a bow before you go, avast, heaving again. Whale balls for breakfast, don't forget. Wish by gore, whale eat him, stead of him eat whale. I'm breast if I ain't more of a shark than Massa Shark himself, muttered the old man, limping away, with which sage ejaculation he went to his hammock. Chapter 65. The Whale as a Dish That mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp, and, like Stubb, eat him by his own light, as you may say, this seems so outlandish a thing that one must needs go a little into the history and philosophy of it. It is upon record that three centuries ago the tongue of the right whale was esteemed a great delicacy in France and commanded large prices there. Also, that in Henry VIII's time, a certain cook of the court obtained a handsome reward for inventing an admirable sauce to be eaten with barbecued porpoises, which you remember are a species of whale. Porpoises, indeed, are to this day considered fine eating. The meat is made into balls about the size of billiard balls, and being well seasoned and spiced might be taken for turtle balls or veal balls. The old monks of Dunfermline were very fond of it. They had a great porpoise grant from the crown. The fact is that among his hunters, at least, the whale would by all hands be considered a noble dish were there not so very much of him. But when you come to sit down before a meat pie nearly 100 feet long, it takes away your appetite. Only the most unprejudiced of men, like Stubb nowadays, partake of cooked whales, but the Eskimo are not so fastidious. We all know how they live upon whales, and have rare old vintages of prime old train oil. Zogranda, one of their most famous doctors, recommends strips of blubber for infants as being exceedingly juicy and nourishing. And this reminds me that certain Englishmen, who long ago were accidentally left in Greenland by a whaling vessel, that these men actually lived for several months on the moldy scraps of whales which had been left ashore after drying out the blubber. Among the Dutch whalemen, these scraps are called fritters which indeed they greatly resemble being brown and crisp and smelling something like old Amsterdam housewives' donuts or olikooks when fresh. They have such an eatable look that the most self-denying stranger can hardly keep his hands off. 
But what further depreciates the whale as a civilized dish is his exceeding richness. He is the great prize ox of the sea, too fat to be delicately good. Look at his hump, which would be as fine eating as the buffalo's, which is esteemed as a rare dish, were it not such a solid pyramid of fat. But the spermaceti itself, how bland and creamy that is, like the transparent half-jellied white meat of a coconut in the third month of its growth, yet far too rich to supply a substitute for butter. Nevertheless, many whalemen have a method of absorbing it into some other substance and then partaking of it. In the long tri-watches of the night, it is a common thing for the seamen to dip their ship biscuit into the huge oil pots and let them fry there a while. Many a good supper have I thus made. In the case of a small sperm whale, the brains are accounted a fine dish, the casket of the skull is broken into with an axe, and the two plump whitish lobes being withdrawn, precisely resembling two large puddings, they are then mixed with flour and cooked into a most delectable mess, in flavor somewhat resembling calves' heads, which is quite a dish among some epicures. And everyone knows that some young bucks among the epicures, by continually dining upon calves' brains, by and by get to have a little brains of their own, so as to be able to tell a calf's head from their own heads, which indeed requires uncommon discrimination. And that is the reason why a young buck with an intelligent-looking calf's head before him is somehow one of the saddest sights you can see. The head looks a sort of reproachfully at him, with an et tu brute expression. It is not, perhaps, entirely because the whale is so excessively unctuous that landmen seem to regard the eating of him with abhorrence that appears to result in some way from the consideration before mentioned, i.e. that a man should eat a newly murdered thing of the sea and eat it too by its own light, but no doubt the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer, perhaps he was hung, and if he had been put on his trial by oxen, he certainly would have been, and he certainly deserved it if any murderer does. Go to the meat market of a Saturday night and see the crowds of live bipeds staring up at the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not that sight take a tooth out of the cannibal's jaw? Cannibals? Who is not a cannibal? I tell you it will be more tolerable for the Fiji that salted down a lean missionary in his cellar against a coming famine, it will be more tolerable for that provident Fiji, I say, in the day of judgment, than for thee, civilized and enlightened gourmand, who nailest geese to the ground and feastest on their bloated livers in thy pot de foie gras. But Stubb, he eats the whale by its own light, does he? And that is adding insult to injury, is it? Look at your knife handle there, my civilized and enlightened gourmand dining off the roast beef, and what is the handle made of? What but the bones of the brother of the very ox you are eating? And what do you pick your teeth with after devouring that fat goose? With a feather of the same fowl. And with what quill did the secretary for the Society of the Suppression of Cruelty to Ganders formally indict his circulars? It is only within the last month or two that that society passed a resolution to patronize nothing but steel pens. Chapter 66 The Shark Massacre When in the southern fishery a captured sperm whale, after long and weary toil, is brought alongside late at night, it is not, as a general thing at least, customary to proceed at once to the business of cutting him in for that business is an exceedingly laborious one, is not soon completed, and requires all hands to set about it. 
Therefore, the common usage is to take in all sail, lash the helm a lee, and then send everyone below to his hammock till daylight, with the reservation that, until that time, anchor watches shall be kept. That is, two and two for an hour, each couple of the crew in rotation shall mount the deck to see that all goes well. But sometimes, especially upon the line in the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all, because such incalculable hosts of sharks gather round the moored carcass that were it left so for six hours, say, on a stretch, little more than the skeleton would be visible by morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous ferocity can be at times considerably diminished by vigorously stirring them with sharp whaling spades, a procedure notwithstanding which in some instances only seems to tickle them into a still greater activity. But it was not thus in the present case with the Pequod's sharks, though, to be sure, any man unaccustomed to such sights to have looked over her side that night would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese, and those sharks the maggots in it. Nevertheless, upon Stubb setting the anchor watch after his supper was concluded, and when, accordingly, Queequeg and a forecastle seaman came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks, for immediately suspending the cutting stages over the side and lowering three lanterns so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid sea, these two mariners, darting their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks. Footnote. The whaling spade used for cutting in is made of the very best steel, is about the bigness of a man's spread hand, and in general shape corresponds to the garden implement after which it is named. Only its sides are perfectly flat, and its upper end considerably narrower than the lower. This weapon is always kept as sharp as possible, and when being used is occasionally honed just like a razor. In its socket, a stiff pole from 20 to 30 feet long is inserted for a handle. And footnote. By striking the keen steel deep into their skulls, seemingly their only vital part. But in the foamy confusion of their mixing and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their mark, and this brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped, not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexed bows bent round and bit their own, till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth, to be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones, after what might be called the individual life had departed. Killed and hoisted on deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Queequeg's hand off when he tried to shut down the dead lid of his murderous jaw. Queequeg no care what god made him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji god or Nantucket god, but de god what made shark must be one damn ingon. Chapter 67 Cutting In it was a Saturday night, and such a Sabbath as followed. Ex-officio professors of Sabbath-breaking are all whalemen. The ivory Pequod was turned into what seemed a shamble, every sailor a butcher. You would have thought we were offering up 10,000 red oxen to the sea gods. 
In the first place, the enormous cutting tackles, among other ponderous things comprising a cluster of blocks generally painted green and which no single man can possibly lift, this vast bunch of grapes was swaying up in the main top and firmly lashed to the lower masthead, the strongest point anywhere above a ship's deck. The end of the hosier-like rope winding through these intricacies was then conducted to the windlass and the huge lower block of these tackles was swung over the whale. To this block, the great blubber hook, weighing some 100 pounds, was attached, and now, suspended in stages over the side, Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, armed with their long spades, began cutting a hole in the body for the insertion of the hook, just above the nearest of the two side fins. This done, a broad semicircular line is cut round the hole, the hook is inserted, and the main body of the crew, striking up a wild chorus, now commence heaving in one dense crowd at the windlass. When instantly the entire ship careens over on her side, every bolt in her starts like the nailheads of an old house in frosty weather. She trembles, quivers, and nods her frightened mastheads to the sky. More and more she leans over to the whale, while every gasping heave of the windlass is answered by a helping heave from the billows, till, at last, a swift, startling snap is heard. With a great swash, the ship rolls upwards and backwards from the whale, and the triumphant tackle rises into sight, dragging after it the disengaged semicircular end of the first strip of blubber. Now, as the blubber envelops the whale precisely as the rind does an orange, so it is stripped off from the body precisely as an orange is sometimes stripped by spiralizing it. For the strain kept up by the windlass continually keeps the whale rolling over and over in the water, and as the blubber in one strip uniformly peels off along the line, called the scarf, simultaneously cut by the spades of Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, and just as fast as it is thus peeled off, and indeed by the very act itself it is all the time being hoisted higher and higher aloft till its upper end grazes the main top. The men at the windlass then cease heaving, and for a moment or two the prodigious blood-dripping mass sways to and fro, as if let down from the sky, and everyone present must take good heed to dodge it when it swings, else it may box his ears and pitch him headlong overboard. One of the attending harpooners now advances with a long, keen weapon called a boarding sword, and watching his chance, he dexterously slices out a considerable hole in the lower part of the swaying mass. Into this hole, the end of the second alternating great tackle is then hooked, so as to retain a hold upon the blubber, in order to prepare for what follows. Whereupon, this accomplished swordsman, warning all hands to stand off, once more makes a scientific dash at the mass, and with a few sidelong desperate lunging slicings, severs it completely in twain, so that while the shorter lower part is still fast, the long upper strip, called a blanket piece, swings clear and is all ready for lowering. The heavers forward now resume their song, and while the one tackle is peeling and hoisting a second strip from the whale, the other is slowly slackened away, and down goes the first strip through the main hatchway right beneath into an unfurnished parlor called the blubber room. In this twilight apartment, sundry nimble hands keep coiling away the long blanket piece as if it were a great live mass of plated serpents. And thus the work proceeds. 
the two tackles hoisting and lowering simultaneously, both whale and windlass heaving, the heavers singing, the blubber room gentlemen coiling, the mates scarfing, the ship straining, and all hands swearing occasionally, by way of assuaging the general friction. Chapter 68. The Blanket. I have given no small attention to that not unvexed subject, the skin of the whale. I have had controversies about it with experienced whalemen afloat and learned naturalists ashore. My original opinion remains unchanged, but it is only an opinion. The question is, what and where is the skin of the whale? Already you know what blubber is. That blubber is something of the consistence of firm, close-grained beef, but tougher, more elastic and compact, and ranges from 8 or 10 to 12 and 15 inches in thickness. Now, however preposterous it may seem at first to talk of any creature's skin as being of that sort of consistence and thickness, yet in point of fact these are no arguments against such a presumption, because you cannot raise any other dense enveloping layer from the whale's body but that same blubber and the outermost enveloping layer of any animal, if reasonably dense, what can there be but the skin? True, from the unmarred dead body of the whale you may scrape off with your hand an infinitely thin, transparent substance, somewhat resembling the thinnest shreds of isinglass, only it is almost as flexible and soft as satin, that is, previous to being dried, when it not only contracts and thickens but becomes rather hard and brittle. I have several such dried bits, which I use for marks in my whale books. It is transparent, as I said before, and being laid upon the printed page, I have sometimes pleased myself with fancying it exerted a magnifying influence. At any rate, it is pleasant to read about whales through their own spectacles, as you may say. But what I am driving at here is this. That same infinitely thin isinglass substance, which I admit invests the entire body of the whale, is not so much to be regarded as the skin of the creature as the skin of the skin, so to speak, for it were simply ridiculous to say that the proper skin of the tremendous whale is thinner and more tender than the skin of a newborn child, but no more of this. Assuming the blubber to be the skin of the whale, then, when this skin, as in the case of a very large sperm whale, will yield the bulk of 100 barrels of oil, and when it is considered that in quantity, or rather weight, that oil in its expressed state is only three-fourths and not the entire substance of the coat, some idea may hence be had of the enormousness of that animated mass, a mere part of whose integument yields such a lake of liquid as that. Reckoning ten barrels to the ton, you have ten tons for the net weight of only three-quarters of the stuff of the whale's skin. In life, the visible surface of the sperm whale is not the least among the many marvels he presents. Almost invariably, it is all over obliquely crossed and recrossed with numberless straight marks in thick array, something like those in the finest Italian line engravings. But these marks do not seem to be impressed upon the isinglass substance above mentioned, but seem to be seen through it as if they were engraved upon the body itself. Nor is this all. In some instances, to the quick observant eye, these linear marks as in a veritable engraving but afford the ground for far other delineations. These are hieroglyphical, that is, if you call those mystical ciphers on the walls of pyramids hieroglyphics, then it is the proper word to use in the present connection. 
By my retentive memory of the hieroglyphics upon one sperm whale in particular, I was much struck with a plate representing the old Indian characters chiseled on the famous hieroglyphic palisades on the banks of the upper Mississippi. Like those mystic marks too, the mystic marked whale remains undecipherable. This allusion to the Indian rocks reminds me of another thing. Besides all the other phenomena which the exterior of the sperm whale presents, he not seldom displays the back, and more especially his flanks effaced in great part of the regular linear appearance by reason of numerous rude scratches, altogether of an irregular, random aspect. I should say that those New England rocks on the seacoast which Agassiz imagines to bear the marks of violent scraping contact with vast floating icebergs, I should say that those rocks must not a little resemble the sperm whale in this particular. It also seems to me that such scratches on the whale are probably made by hostile contact with other whales, for I have most remarked them in the large, full-grown bulls of the species. A word or two more concerning this matter of the skin or blubber of the whale. It has already been said that it is stripped from him in long pieces, called blanket pieces. Like most sea terms, this one is very happy and significant, for the whale is indeed wrapped up in his blubber as in a real blanket or counterpane, or still better, an Indian poncho slipped over his head, and skirting his extremity. It is by reason of this cozy blanketing of his body that the whale is enabled to keep himself comfortable in all weathers, in all seas, times, and tides. What would become of a Greenland whale, say, in those shuddering icy seas of the north, if unsupplied his cozy surtout? True, other fish are found exceedingly brisk in those hyperborean waters, but these, be it observed, are your cold-blooded, lungless fish whose bellies are refrigerators, creatures that warm themselves under the lee of an iceberg as a traveler in winter would bask before an infire, whereas, like man, the whale has lungs and warm blood. Freeze his blood, and he dies. How wonderful it is, then, except after explanation, that this great monster, to whom corporeal warmth is as indispensable as it is to man, how wonderful that he should be found at home, immersed to his lips for the life in those arctic waters. Where, when seamen fall overboard, they are sometimes found, months afterwards, perpendicularly frozen into the hearts of fields of ice, as a fly is found glued in amber. But more surprising it is to know, as has been proved by experiment, that the blood of a polar whale is warmer than that of any Borneo Negro in summer. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality, and the rare virtue of thick walls, and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. O oh man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou too remain warm among ice? Do thou too live in this world without being of it? Be cool at the equator, keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's and like the great whale, retain, O man, in all seasons a temperature of thine own. But how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things. Of erections, how few are domed like St. Peter's. Of creatures, how few vast as the whale. Chapter 69. The Funeral. All in chains! Let the caucus go astern! The vast tackles have now done their duty. The peeled white body of the beheaded whale flashes like a marble sepulchre, though charged in hue. 
It has not perceptibly lost anything in bulk. It is still colossal. Slowly it floats more and more away, the water round it torn and splashed by the insatiate sharks, and the air above vexed with rapacious flights of screaming fowls whose beaks are like so many insulting poignards in the whale. The vast, white, headless phantom floats further and further from the ship, and every rod that it so floats what seem square roods of sharks and cubic roods of fowls augment the murderous din. For hours and hours from the almost stationary ship that hideous sight is seen, beneath the unclouded and mild azure sky, upon the fair face of the pleasant sea, wafted by the joyous breezes, that great mass of death floats on and on, till lost in infinite perspective. There is a most doleful and most mocking funeral. The sea vultures all in pious mourning, the air sharks all punctiliously in black or speckled. In life, but few of them would have helped the whale. I ween, if peradventure he had needed it, but upon the banquet of his funeral they most piously do pounce. O oh, horrible vulturism of earth, from which not the mightiest whale is free. Nor is this the end. Desecrated as the body is, a vengeful ghost survives and hovers over it to scare. Espied by some timid man-of-war or blundering discovery vessel from afar when the distance obscuring the swarming fowls, nevertheless still shows the white mass floating in the sun and the white spray heaving high against it straight away the whale's unharming corpse with trembling fingers is set down in the log shoals rocks and breakers hereabouts beware and for years afterwards perhaps ships shun the place leaping over it as silly sheep leap over a vacuum because their leader originally leaped when a stick was held there's your law of precedence, there's your utility of traditions, there's the story of your obstinate survival of old beliefs never bottomed on the earth and now not even hovering in the air. There's orthodoxy. Thus, while in life the great whale's body may have been a real terror to his foes, in his death his ghost becomes a powerless panic to a world. Are you a believer in ghosts, my friend? There are other ghosts than the Cochlane one and far deeper men than Dr. Johnson who believe in them. Chapter 70 The Sphinx It should not have been admitted that previous to completely stripping the body of the Leviathan, he was beheaded. Now the beheading of the sperm whale is a scientific anatomical feat upon which experienced whale surgeons very much pride themselves, and not without reason. Consider that the whale has nothing that can properly be called a neck. On the contrary, where his head and body seem to join, there, in that very place, is the thickest part of him. Remember also that the surgeon must operate from above, some eight or ten feet intervening between him and his subject, and that subject almost hidden in a discolored, rolling, and oftentimes tumultuous and bursting sea. Bear in mind, too, that under these untoward circumstances he has to cut many feet deep in the flesh, and that the subterraneous matter, without so much as getting one single peep into the ever-contracting gash thus made, he must skillfully steer clear of all adjacent interdicted parts, and exactly divide the spine at a critical point hard by its insertion into the skull. Do you not marvel, then, at Stubbs' boast that he had demanded but ten minutes to behead a sperm whale? 
When first severed, the head is dropped astern and held there by a cable till the body is stripped. That done, if it belong to a small whale, it is then hoisted on deck to be deliberately disposed of. But with a full-grown leviathan, this is impossible, for the sperm whale's head embraces nearly one-third of his entire bulk, and completely to suspend such a burden as that, even by the immense tackles of a whaler, this were as vain a thing as to attempt weighing a Dutch barn on a jeweler's scales. The Pequod's whale being decapitated and the body stripped, the head was hoisted against the ship's side about halfway out of the sea so that it might yet in great part be buoyed up by its native element, and there, with the strained craft steeply leaning over it by reason of the enormous downward drag of the lower masthead and every yard arm on that side projecting like a crane over the waves, there that blood-dripping head hung to the Pequod's waist like the giant holofernises from the girdle of Judith. When that last task was accomplished, it was noon, and the seamen went below to their dinner. Silence reigned over the before tumultuous but now deserted deck. An intense copper calm, like a universal yellow lotus, was more and more unfolding its noiseless, measureless leaves upon the sea. A short space elapsed, and up into this noiselessness came Ahab, alone from his cabin. Taking a few turns on the quarter-deck, he paused to gaze over the side, then, slowly getting into the main chains, he took Stubb's long spade, still remaining there after the whale's decapitation, and striking it into the lower part of the half-suspended mast, placed its other end crutch-wise under one arm, and so stood, leaning over with eyes attentively fixed on this head. It was a black and hooded head, and hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm, it seemed the sphinx's head in the desert. Speak, thou vast and venerable head, muttered Ahab, which, though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses. Speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers, thou hast dived the deepest. That head upon which the upper sun now gleams has moved amidst this world's foundations. Where unrecorded names and navies rust, and untold hopes and anchors rot. Where in her murderous hold this frigate earth is ballasted, with bones of millions of the drowned. Here in that awful waterland, there was thy most familiar home. Thou hast been where bell and diver never went. Has slept by many a sailor's side, where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Thou sawst the locked lovers when leaping for their flaming ship. Heart to heart they sank beneath the exulting wave, true to each other when heaven seemed false to them. Thou sawst the murdered mate, who tossed by pirates from the midnight deck. For hours he fell into deeper midnight of the insatiate maw, and his murderers still sailed on, unharmed with swift lightnings shivering the neighboring ship that would have borne a righteous husband to outstretched longing arms. O oh, head, thou hast enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Ahab, and not one syllable is thine. Sail ho! cried a triumphant voice from the main masthead. Aye! Well now, that's cheering, cried Ahab, suddenly erecting himself, while whole thunderclouds swept aside from his brow. That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man. 
Where away? Three points on the starboard bow, sir, and bringing down her breeze to us. Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul come along that way, and my breezelessness bring his breeze? O oh, nature, O oh, soul of man, how far beyond all utterance are you linked analogies? Not by the smallest atom stirs or lives on matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. Chapter 71 The Jeroboam's Story Hand in hand, ship and breeze blew on, but the breeze came faster than the ship, and soon the Pequod began to rock. By and by, through the glass, the stranger's boats and manned mastheads proved her a whale ship, but as she was so far to windward and shooting by, apparently making a passage to some other ground, the Pequod could not hope to reach her, so the signal was set to see what response would be made. Here be it said that, like the vessels of military marines, the ships of the American whale fleet have each a private signal, all which signals being collected in a book with the names of the respected vessels attached. Every captain is provided with it. Thereby, the whale commanders are enabled to recognize each other upon the ocean, even at considerable distances with no small facility. The Pequod's signal was at last responded to by the strangers setting her own, which proved the ship to be the Jeroboam of Nantucket. Squaring her yards, she bore down, ranged a beam under the Pequod's lee, and lowered a boat. It soon drew nigh, but as the side ladder was being rigged by Starbuck's order to accommodate the visiting captain, the stranger in question waved his hand from his boat's stern in token of that proceeding being entirely unnecessary. It turned out that the Jeroboam had a malignant epidemic on board, and that Mayhew, her captain, was fearful of infecting the Pequod's company. For, though himself and the boat's crew remained untainted, though his ship was half a rifle shot off, and an incorruptible sea and air rolling and flowing between them, yet consciously adhering to the timid quarantine of the land, he preemptorily refused to come into direct contact with the Pequod. But this did by no means prevent all communications. Preserving an interval of some few yards between itself and the ship, the Jeroboam's boat, by the occasional use of its oars, contrived to keep parallel to the Pequod as she heavily forged through the sea, for by this time it blew very fresh, with her main topsail aback, though indeed at times by the sudden onset of a large rolling wave the boat would be pushed some way ahead, but would soon be skillfully brought to her proper bearings again. Subject to this and other the like interruptions now and then, a conversation was sustained between the two parties, but at intervals not without still another interruption of a very different sort. Pulling an oar in the Jeroboam's boat was a man of singular appearance, even in that wild wailing life where individual notabilities make up all totalities. He was a small, short, youngish man sprinkled all over his face with freckles and wearing redundant yellow hair. A long-skirted, cannibalistically cut coat of a faded walnut tinge enveloped him, the overlapping sleeves of which were rolled up on his wrists. A deep, settled, fanatic delirium was in his eyes. So soon as this figure had been first described, Stubb then explained, That's he, that's he, the long-tooth scaramouche of the town host company told us of. Stubb here alluded to the strange story told of the Jeroboam and a certain man among her crew some time previous when the Pequod spoke, the town ho. 
According to this account and what was subsequently learned, it seemed that the Scaramouche in question had gained a wonderful ascendancy over almost everybody in the Jeroboam. His story was this. He had been originally nurtured among the crazy society of Neskiyuna Shakers, where he had been a great prophet in their cracked secret meetings, having several times descended from heaven by way of a trap door, announcing the speedy opening of the seventh file which he carried in his vest pocket, but which, instead of containing gunpowder, was supposed to be charged with laudanum. A strange apostolic whim having seized him, he had left Neskayuna for Nantucket, where, with that cunning peculiar to craziness, he assumed a steady, common-sense exterior, offered himself as a green-hand candidate for the Jeroboam's whaling voyage. They engaged him. But straight away, upon the ships getting out of sight of land, his insanity broke out in a freshnet. He announced himself as the Archangel Gabriel and commanded the captain to jump overboard. He published his manifesto, whereby he set himself forth as the deliverer of the Isles of the Sea and Vicar General of all Oceanica. The unflinching earnestness with which he declared these things, the dark, daring play of his sleepless, excited imagination, and the preternatural terrors of real delirium united to invest this Gabriel in the minds of the majority of the ignorant crew with an atmosphere of sacredness. Moreover, they were afraid of him, as such a man, however, was not of much particular use in a ship, especially as he refused to work, except when he pleased, the incredulous captain would fain have been rid of him, but appraised that that individual's intention was to land him in the first convenient port, the archangel forthwith opened all his seals and vials, devoting the ship and all hands to an unconditional perdition, in case this intention was carried out. So strongly did he work upon his disciples among the crew that at last in a body they went to the captain and told him if Gabriel was sent from the ship, not a man of them would remain. He was therefore forced to relinquish his plan, nor would they permit Gabriel to be any way maltreated, say or do what he would, so that it came to pass that Gabriel had the complete freedom of the ship. The consequence of all this was that the archangel cared little or nothing for the captain and mates, and since the epidemic had broken out, he carried a higher hand than ever, declaring that the plague, as he called it, was at his sole command, nor should it be stayed but according to his good pleasure. The sailors, mostly poor devils, cringed, and some of them fawned before him in obedience to his instructions, sometimes rendering him personal homage as to a god. Such things may seem incredible, but, however wondrous, they are true. Nor is the history of fanatics half so striking in respect to the measureless self-deception of the fanatic himself, as his measureless power of deceiving and bedeviling so many others. But it is time to return to the Pequod. I fear not thy epidemic, man, said Ahab from the bulwarks to the Captain Mayhew, who stood in the boat's stern. Come on board! But now Gabriel started to his feet. Think! Think of the fevers, yellow and bilious! Beware of the horrible plague! Gabriel! Gabriel! cried Captain Mayhew. Thou must either... But that instant a headlong wave shot the boat far ahead, and its seethings drowned all speech. Hast thou seen the white whale? demanded Ahab when the boat drifted back. Think, think of thy whale-boat, stoven and sunk! Beware of the horrible tale! 
I tell thee again, Gabriel, that... But again the boat tore ahead as if dragged by fiends. Nothing was said for some moments while the succession of riotous waves rolled by, which by one of those occasional caprices of the seas were tumbling, not heaving it. Meantime the hoisted sperm whale's head jogged about very violently, and Gabriel was seen eyeing it with rather more apprehensiveness than his archangel nature seemed to warrant. When this interlude was over, Captain Mayhew began a dark story concerning Moby Dick, not, however, without frequent interruptions from Gabriel whenever his name was mentioned, and the crazy sea that seemed leagued with him. It seemed that the Jeroboam had not long left home when, upon speaking a whale ship, her people were reliably appraised of the existence of Moby Dick and the havoc he made. Greedily sucking in this intelligence, Gabriel solemnly warned the captain against attacking the white whale in case the monster should be seen, in his gibbering insanity pronouncing the white whale to be no less a being than the Shaker God incarnated. The Shakers receiving the Bible. But in his gibbering insanity pronouncing the white whale to be no less a being than the Shaker God incarnated, the Shakers receiving the Bible. But when some year or two afterwards Moby Dick was fairly sighted from the mastheads, Macy, the chief mate, burned with ardor to encounter him, and the captain himself being not unwilling to let him have the opportunity despite all the archangel's denunciations and forewarnings, Macy succeeded in persuading five men to man his boat. With them he pushed off, and after much weary pulling and many perilous, unsuccessful onsets, he at last succeeded in getting one iron fast. Meantime, Gabriel, ascending to the main royal masthead, was tossing one arm in frantic gestures and hurling forth prophecies of speedy doom to the sacrilegious assailants of his divinity. Now, while Macy, the mate, was standing up in his boat's bow with all the reckless energy of his tribe, was venting his wild exclamations upon the whale and essaying to get a fair chance for his poised lance, lo, a broad white shadow rose from the sea by its quick fanning motion temporarily taking the breath out of the bodies of the oarsmen. Next instant, the luckless mate, so full of furious life, was smitten bodily into the air and making a long arc in his descent, fell into the sea at a distance of about fifty yards. Not a chip of the boat was harmed, nor a hair of an oarsman's head, but the mate forever sank. It is well to parenthesize here that of the fatal accidents in the sperm whale fishery, this kind is perhaps almost as frequent as any. Sometimes nothing is injured but the man who is thus annihilated. Oftener, the boat's bow is knocked off or the thigh board in which the headsman stands is torn from its place and accompanies the body. But strangest of all is the circumstance that in more instances than one, when the body has been recovered, not a single mark of violence is discernible, the man being stark dead. The whole calamity with the falling form of Macy was plainly descried from the ship, raising a piercing shriek, The vile! The vile! The vile! Gabriel called off the terror-stricken crew from the further hunting of the whale. This terrible event clothed the archangel with added influence because his credulous disciples believed that he had specifically foreannounced it instead of only making a general prophecy which anyone might have done and so have chanced to hit one of many marks in the wide margin allowed. He became a nameless terror to the ship. 
Mayhew having concluded his narration, Ahab put such questions to him that the stranger captain could not forbear inquiring whether he intended to hunt the white whale, if opportunity should offer, to which Ahab answered, Ay! Straightway then. Gabriel once more started to his feet, glaring upon the old man, and vehemently exclaimed with downward-pointing finger, Think! Think of the blasphemer dead! And down there, beware the blasphemer's end! Ahab stolidly turned aside, then said to Mayhew, Captain, I have just bethought me of my letter-bag. There is a letter to one of thy officers. If I mistake not, Starbuck, look over the bag. Every whale ship takes out a goodly number of letters for various ships whose delivery to the persons to whom they may be addressed depends on the mere chance of encountering them in the four oceans. Thus, most letters never reach their mark, and many are only received after attaining an age of two or three years or more. Soon Starbuck returned with a letter in his hand. It was sorely tumbled, damp, and covered with a dull spotted green mold in consequence of being kept in a dark locker of the cabin. Of such a letter, Death himself might well have been the postboy. Canst thou not read it? cried Ahab. Give it me, man. Ay, ay, it's but a dim scrawl. What's this? As he was studying it out, Starbuck took a long cutting spade pole and with his knife slightly split the end to insert the letter there and in that way hand it to the boat without his coming any closer to the ship. Meantime, Ahab, holding the letter, muttered, Mr. Har, yes, Mr. Harry. Woman's penny hand, the man's wife, I'll wager. Hey, Mr. Harry Macy, ship Jeroboam. Why, it's Macy, and he's dead. Poor fellow, poor fellow, and from his wife, sighed Mayhew. But let, let me have it. Nay, keep it thyself cried Gabriel to Ahab. Thou art soon going that way. Curses throttle thee, yelled Ahab. Captain Mayhew, stand but now to receive it. And taking the fatal missive from Starbuck's hands, he caught it in the slit of the pole and reached it towards the boat. But as he did so, the oarsmen expectantly desisted from rowing. The boat drifted a little towards the ship's stern, so that, as if by magic, the letter suddenly ranged along with Gabriel's eager hand. He clutched it in an instant, seizing the boat knife and impaling the letter on it, sent it thus loaded back into the ship. It fell at Ahab's feet. Then Gabriel shrieked out his commands to give way with their oars, and in that manner the mutinous boat rapidly shot away from the Pequod. As, after this interlude, the seamen resumed their work upon the jacket of the whale, many strange things were hinted in reference to this wild affair. Chapter 72 The Monkey Rope in the tumultuous business of cutting in and attending to a whale, there is much running backwards and forwards among the crew. Now hands are wanted here, and then again hands are wanted there. There is no staying in any one place, for at one and the same time everything has to be done everywhere. It is much the same with him who endeavors the description of the scene. We must now retrace our way a little. It was mentioned that upon first breaking ground in the whale's back, the blubber hook was inserted into the original hole there cut by the spades of the mates. But how did so clumsy and weighty a mass as that same hook get fixed in that hole? It was inserted there by my particular friend Queequeg, 
whose duty it was as harpooner to descend upon the monster's back for the special purpose referred to, but in many cases circumstances require that the harpooner shall remain on the whale till the whole flensing or stripping operation is concluded. The whale, be it observed, lies almost entirely submerged except the immediate parts operated upon. So, down there, some ten feet below the level of the deck, the poor harpooner flounders about, half on the whale and half in the water, as the vast mass revolves like a tread mill beneath him. On the occasion in question, Queequeg figured in the Highland costume, a shirt and socks, in which, to my eyes at least, he appeared to uncommon advantage and no one had a better chance to observe him, as will precisely be seen. Being the savage's bowsman, that is, the person who pulled the bow oar in his boat, the second one from forward, it was my cheerful duty to attend upon him while taking that hard scrabble scramble upon the dead whale's back. You have seen Italian organ boys holding a dancing ape by a long cord? Just so. From the ship's steep side did I hold Queequeg down there in the sea by what is technically called in the fishery a monkey rope, attached to a long strip of canvas belted round his waist. It was a humorously perilous business for both of us, for before we proceed further it must be said that the monkey rope was fast at both ends, fast to Queequeg's broad canvas belt, and fast to my narrow leather one, so that for better or for worse we too for that time were wedded, and should poor Queequeg sink to rise no more, then both usage and honor demanded that instead of cutting the cord it should drag me down in its wake. So then an elongated Siamese ligature united us. Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother, nor could I any way get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then, that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two, that my free will had received a mortal wound, and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have so gross an injustice. And yet, still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and the ship which would threaten to jam him, still further pondering, I say, I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. Only, in most cases, he, one way or another, has this Siamese connection with the plurality of other mortals. If your banker breaks, you snap. If your apothecary by mistake sends you poison in your pills, you die. True, you may say that by exceeding caution you may possibly escape these and the multitudinous other evil chances of life, but handle Queequeg's monkey rope heedfully as I would, sometimes he jerked it so that I came very near sliding overboard. Nor could I possibly forget that, do what I would, I only had the management of one end of it. Footnote. The monkey rope is found in all whalers, but it is only in the Pequod that the monkey and his holder were ever tied together. This improvement upon the original usage was introduced by no less a man than Stubb in order to afford the imperiled harpooner the strongest possible guarantee for the faithfulness and vigilance of his monkey rope holder. End footnote. 
I have hinted that I would often jerk poor Queequeg from between the whale and the ship where he would occasionally fall from the incessant rolling and swaying of both, but this was not the only jamming jeopardy he was exposed to. Unappalled by the massacre made upon them during the night, the sharks, now freshly and more keenly allured by the before pent-up blood which began to flow from the carcass, the rabid creatures swarmed round it like bees in a beehive. And right in among those sharks was Queequeg, who often pushed them aside with his floundering feet, a thing altogether incredible were it not that, attracted by such prey as a dead whale, the otherwise miscellaneously carnivorous shark will seldom touch a man. Nevertheless, it may well be believed that since they have such a ravenous finger in the pie, it is deemed but wise to look sharp to them. Accordingly, besides the monkey rope with which I now and then jerked the poor fellow from too close a vicinity to the maw of what seemed a particularly ferocious shark, he was provided with still another protection. Suspended over the side in one of the stages, Tashtigo and Dago continually flourished over his head a couple of keen whale spades, wherewith they slaughtered as many sharks as they could reach. This procedure of theirs, to be sure, was very disinterested and benevolent of them. They meant Queequeg's best happiness, I admit, but in their hasty zeal to befriend him and from the circumstances that both he and the sharks were at times half hidden by the blood-muddled water, those indiscreet spades of theirs would come nearer amputating a leg than a tail. But poor Queequeg, I suppose, only prayed to his yojo and gave up his life into the hands of his gods. Well, well, my dear comrade and twin brother, thought I, as I drew in and then slacked off the rope to every swell of the sea, what matters it, after all? Are you not the precious image of each and all of us men in this wailing world? That unsounded ocean you gasp in is life. Those sharks, your foes? Those spades, your friends? And what between sharks and spades you are in a sad pickle of peril, poor lad? But courage! There is a good cheer in store for you, Queequeg, for now, as with blue lips and bloodshot eyes, the exhausted savage at last climbs up the chains and stands, all dripping and involuntarily trembling over the side. The steward advances and with a benevolent conciliatory glance hands him, what, some hot cognac? No, hands him, ye gods, hands him a cup of tepid ginger and water. Ginger, do I smell ginger? suspiciously asked Stubb, coming near. Yes, this must be Ginger, peering into the as-yet-untasted cup. Then, standing as if incredulous for a while, he calmly walked toward the astonished steward, slowly saying, Ginger, Ginger, will you have the goodness to tell me, Mr. Doughboy, where lies the future of Ginger? Ginger, is Ginger the sort of fuel you use, Doughboy, to kindle the fire in the heart of a shimmering cannibal? Ginger, what the devil is Ginger? Sea coal, firewood, lucifer matches, tinder, gunpowder? What the devil is ginger, I say, that you offer this cup to our poor Queequeg here? There is some sneaking temperance society movement about this business, he suddenly added, now approaching Starbuck, who had just come from forward. We look at that kind of concern. Smell it, if you please. Then, watching the mate's countenance, he added, The steward, Mr. Starbuck, had the face to offer that calomel and jalop to Queequeg. There, this instant, off the whale. Is the steward an apothecary, sir? May I ask whether this is the sort of bitters with which he throws back the life into a half-drowned man? I trust not, said Starbuck. It is poor stuff enough. Hey, steward, cried Stubb. We'll teach you to drug a harpooner. None of your apothecary's medicine here. You want to poison us, do you? You've got your insurances out of our lives and want to murder us all and pocket the proceeds, don't you? 
It was not me, cried Doughboy. It was Aunt Charity that would give the ginger on board and bade me never give the harpooners any spirits, but only this ginger jub, as she called it. Ginger jub? You gingery rascal, take that! And run along with you to the lockers and get something better. I do hope no wrong, Mr. Starbuck. Is the captain's orders grog for the harpooner on the whale? Enough, replied Starbuck. Only don't hit him again, but... Oh, I never hit him hurt when I hit, except when I hit a whale with something of that sort. And this fellow's a weasel. What were you about saying, sir? Only this. Go down with him and get what thou wantest thyself. Only this. Go down with him and get what thou wantest thyself. When Stubb reappeared, he came with a dark flask in one hand and a sort of tea caddy in the other. The first contained strong spirits and was handed to Queequeg. The second was Aunt Charity's gift, and that was freely given to the waves. Chapter 73. Stub and Flask kill a right whale, and then have a talk over him. It must be borne in mind that all this time we have a sperm whale's prodigious head hanging to the Pequod's side, but we must let it continue hanging there for a while till we can get a chance to attend to it. For the present other matters press, and the best we can do now for the head is to pray heaven and tackles may hold. Now, during the past night and forenoon, the Pequod had gradually drifted into a sea which, by its occasional patches of yellow brit, gave unusual tokens of the vicinity of right whales, a species of the leviathan that but few supposed to be at this particular time lurking anywhere near. And though all hands commonly disdained the capture of those inferior creatures, and though the Pequod was not commissioned to cruise for them at all, and though she had passed numbers of them near the Crozettes without lowering a boat, yet now that a sperm whale had been brought alongside and beheaded, to the surprise of all, the announcement was made that a right whale should be captured that day if opportunity offered. Nor was this long wanting. Tall spouts were seen to leeward, and two boats— Stubs and flasks were detached in pursuit. Pulling further and further away, they at last became almost invisible to the men at the masthead, but suddenly in the distance they saw a great heap of tumultuous white water, and soon after news came from aloft that one or both the boats must be fast. An interval passed, and the boats were in plain sight, in the act of being dragged right towards the ship by the towing whale. So close did the monster come to the hull that at first it seemed as if he meant it malice, but suddenly going down in a maelstrom within three rods of the planks, he wholly disappeared from view, as if diving under the keel. Caught! Caught! was the cry from the ship to the boats, which for one instant seemed on the point of being brought into the deadly dash against the vessel's side, but having plenty of line yet in the tubs and the whale not sounding very rapidly, they paid out abundance of rope and at the same time pulled with all their might so as to get ahead of the ship. For a few minutes the struggle was intensely critical, for while they still slacked out the tightening line in one direction and still plied their oars in the other, the contending strain threatened to take them under, but it was only a few feet advance they sought to gain, and they stuck to it till they did gain it, when instantly a swift tremor was felt running like a lightning along the keel as the straining line scraped beneath the ship suddenly rose to view under her bows, snapping and quivering and so flinging off its drippings that the drops fell like bits of broken glass on the water, while the whale beyond rose to sight, and once more the boats were free to fly. But the fagged whale abated his speed, and blindly altering his course, went round the stern of the ship, towing the two boats after him, so that they performed a complete circuit. 
Meanwhile, they hauled more and more upon their lines, till close flanking him on both sides, Stubb answered Flask with lance for lance, and thus round and round the Pequod the battle went, while the multitudes of sharks that had before swum round the sperm whale's body rushed to the fresh blood that was spilled, thirstily drinking at every new gash, as the eager Israelites did at the new bursting fountains that poured from the smitten rock. At last his spout grew thick, and with a frightful roll and vomit he turned upon his back a corpse. While the two headsmen were engaged in making fast cords to his flukes and in other ways getting the mass in readiness for towing, some conversation ensued between them. I wonder what the old man wants with this lump of lard, said Stubb, not without some disgust at the thought of having to do with so ignorable a leviathan. Wants with it, said Flask, coiling some spare line in the boat's bow. Did you never hear that the ship but once has a sperm whale's head hoisted on her starboard side at the same time as a right whale's on the larboard? Did you ever hear, Stubb, that that ship can never afterwards capsize? Why not? I don't know, but I heard that gamboge ghost of a Fadala saying so, and he seems to know all about ship's charms, but I sometimes think he'll charm the ship to no good at last. I don't half like that chap, Stubb. Did you ever notice how that tusk of his is a sort of carved into a snake's head, Stubb? Sinkum! I never look at him at all, but if I ever get the chance of a dark night and he's standing hard in the bulwarks and no one by, look down there, Flask. Pointing into the sea with a peculiar motion of both hands. Hey, will I, Flask? I take the Fidala to be the devil in disguise. Do you believe that cock and bull story about his having been stowed away on board ship? He's the devil, I say. The reason that you don't see his tail is because he tucks it out of sight. He carries it coiled away in his pocket, I guess. Blast him! Now I think of it, he's always wanting oakum to stuff in the toes of his boots. He sleeps in his boots, don't he? He hasn't got any hammock, but I see him lay of nights in the coil of rigging. No doubt, it's because of his cursed tail. He coils it down, do you see, in the eye of the rigging. What's the old man have so much to do with him for? Striking up a swap or bargain, I suppose. Bargain? About what? Why, do you see, the old man is hard bent after the white whale, and the devil there is trying to come round him and get him to swap away his silver watch or his soul or some sort of thing of that sort, and then he'll surrender, Moby Dick. Heh. <laughs> Stab. You are skylarking. How can Fadala do that? I don't know, Flask, but the devil is a curious trap and a wicked one, I tell you. Why they say is how he went off saunering into the old flagship once, twitching his tail about a devilish easy and gentlemanlike, and inquiring if the old governor was at home. Well, he was at home and asked the devil what he wanted. The devil switched his hooves up and he says, I want John. What for? says the old governor. What business is that is yours? said the devil. Getting mad, I want to use him. Take him, says the governor, and as by the lord flask, if the devil didn't give John the Asiatic cholera before he got through with him. I'll eat this whale in one mouthful, but looks sharp. Ain't you ready there? Well, there ahead. Pull ahead and let's get the whale alongside. I think I remember some such story as you are telling, said Flask, when at last the two boats were slowly advancing with their burden towards the ship, but I can't remember where. Three Spaniards? Adventures of those three bloody-minded soldados? Yeah. Did you read it there, Flask? I guess you did. No, never saw such a book. Heard of it, though. But now tell me, Stubb, do you suppose that the devil you were speaking of just now was the same you say is now on board the Pequod? Am I the same man that helped kill this whale? Doesn't the devil live forever? Whoever heard that the devil was dead? Did you ever see any person wearing a mourning for the devil? And if the devil has a latchkey to get into the admiral's cabin, don't you suppose that he can crawl in a porthole? Tell me that, Mr. Flask. How old do you suppose Fadala is, Stubb? Do you see that mainmast there? Pointing to the ship. 
Well, that's the figure one. Now take all the hoops of the Pequod's hold and string them out along the row with a mast for aughts. Do you see? Well, that would begin to be Fidel's age. Nor all the Coopers in creation couldn't show hoops enough to make aughts enough. But see here, Stubb, I thought you a little boasted just now that you meant to give Fidel a sea toss if you got a good chance. Now, if he's so old as all those hoops of yours come to, and if he is going to live forever, what good will it do to pitch him overboard? Tell me that. Give him a good ducking, anyhow. But he'd crawl back. Duck him again and keep ducking him. Suppose he should take it into his head to duck you, though. Yes, and drown you. What then? I should like to see him try it. I should give him such a pair of black eyes he wouldn't dare show his face in the Admiral's cabin again for a long while. Let alone down in the Orlop there where he lives, and thereabouts in the upper decks where he speaks so much. Damn the devil flask. Do you suppose you suppose you're I'm afraid of the devil? Who's afraid of him except the old governor who doesn't catch him and put him in the double dairies as he deserves? But lets him go after kidnapping people, eh, and sign a bond with him, and all the people the devil kidnapped, he'd roast them. There's a governor. Do you suppose Fadala wants to kidnap Captain Ahab? Do I suppose it? You'll know it before long, Flask, but I'm going now to keep a sharp lookout on him and see if anything very suspicious is going on. I'll take him by the nape of his neck and say, Look here, Beelzebub, you don't do it. And if I make any fuss by the Lord, I'll make a grab into his pocket for his tail, tie it to the capstan, and give him such a wrenching and heaving that his tail will come off short at the stump. Do you see? And then, I rather guess when he finds himself docked in that queer fashion, he'll sneak off without the poor satisfaction of feeling a tail between his legs. And what will you do with the tail, Stub? Do with it! Solid for an ox whip when we get home. What else? Now, do you mean what you say and have been saying all along, Stub? Mean or not mean, here we are at the ship. The boats here were hailed to tow the whale on the larboard side where fluke chains and other necessaries were already prepared for securing him. Didn't I tell you so? said Flask. Yes, you'll soon see this right whale's head hoisted up opposite the Parmacetti's. In good time, Flask's saying proved true. As before, the Pequod steeply leaned over towards the sperm whale's head, now by the counterpoise of both heads she regained her even keel, though sorely strained you may well believe. So when on one side you hoist in Locke's head, you go over that way. But now on the other side hoist in Kant's and you come back again, but in very poor plight. Thus some minds forever keep trimming boat. Oh, ye foolish, throw all these thunderheads overboard, and then you will float light and right. In disposing of the body of the right whale when brought alongside the ship, the same preliminary proceedings commonly take place as is the case with the sperm whale, only in the latter instance the head is cut off whole, but in the former the lips and tongue are separately removed and hoisted on deck, with all the well-known backbone attached to what is called the crown piece. But nothing like this in the present case had been done. The carcasses of both whales had dropped astern, and the head-laden ship not a little resembled a mule carrying a pair of overburdening panniers. Meantime, Fadala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head, and ever and anon glancing from the deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow, while if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. As the crew toiled on, Laplandish speculations were bandied among them concerning all these passing things. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. 
That's S-A-F-T-P at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.